Hello. In the two weeks since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, we've seen a raft of unprecedented economic sanctions. This week, those broadened to moves by some Western countries to bans on Russian energy supplies. Where does this leave markets and what guidance can we draw from past events? I'm Carsten Röhmheld and to help me answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Fidelity International's Chief Global Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey. Hi, Andrew. It's great you're with us again. Thank you very much, uh, Carsten. Good to, uh, to be talking to you yet again. Great to have you back. We've sadly heard and seen more terrible stories coming out of Ukraine this week. The global response has been forceful and on multiple fronts. Can you start by telling us how significant the bans on Russian energy supplies by the likes of the US and UK are? Well, they are very significant. Uh, when you think about the contribution that uh, Russia makes to supplies to different parts of the world, obviously the greatest level is uh, seen through gas as well as oil coming into Europe, but also that does permeate the whole of the energy markets. And as always, that when you take out someone who is a double-figure percentage uh, number in different parts of different uh, uh, marketplaces in the world, you're going to have a significant impact in that supply being uh, removed. And therefore, the, the price profile that we've seen as the basis for getting production online or being supplemented elsewhere, you know, it's very difficult to achieve um, quickly. Um, so I think that the challenge, as we've discussed before, is that this is not just about energy, though, that as we've seen that process of taking oil prices and gas prices higher, we're also seeing other areas being cut off. And it's that impact as it flows through many sectors. I think that we have to think about how will that impact into economies, into supply chains, and then the way that will play through into how policymakers across the world do and don't need to respond, given the impacts from uh, these different considerations. A very complex picture. Markets are pricing more bad news to come and continue their downtrend that already started before this current crisis. What scenarios are they discounting? What recession probabilities are different markets pricing in right now? So I think there's a, uh, you know, there is a difference as we look across the, the world that um, clearly, if we look to Europe, then um, very rapidly, there was an increased concern that this would move from not just a stagflationary environment, but actually tip towards recessionary um, uh, position uh, for the economy. Um, if we look to the US today, I think that it's much more it's still in that stagflation um, uh, environment where growth coming down, but not in any way uh, collapsing. Um, inflation continuing to actually stay high and push higher. And that is really what we've seen as you know, one of the um, very difficult and uh, I think policy making uh, challenges as you try and think through from a Federal Reserve's point of view. How do they try and pull back some of that inflationary pressure, get control there at a time when they do see that the clouds are darkening and that you know, it suggests as we go through the year that growth will be challenged quite significantly? And then when we look to uh, other parts of the world, it really does uh, depend a great degree on you know, income coming from commodity production, energy production, as opposed to having to buy it in, the challenges that then puts onto income levels and how robust the opportunities around the policy flexibility, including how they've built up current account surpluses, have more fiscal levers to use, and how they can then incorporate that to support their economies, allowing them to navigate this period much more effectively and positively than some others in the developed world. 
you've just laid it out. Some are talking about stagflation risks, others about recession risks. So what do you think is worse for the global economy in your view regarding severity and time frame? And what do you think is more likely now? Well, I think one of the things that clearly has happened um, with what we've seen uh, recently is that it's increased the risks that uh, recession can come sooner than maybe we thought was going to be a possibility. You know, we'd been looking at the risks for a recessionary environment and through policy mistake um, that we uh, were concerned about uh, was looking into 2023. That may have been brought forward by the uh, just the extreme events that we have seen in terms of how it's translated through markets. At the moment, the markets have set back and um, obviously varying levels um, through the course of um, the last few months and as well as weeks. But I think it's also interesting as we look year to date that we're seeing both bonds and also equities down. And if you use the US as a proxy, looking across the bond market, looking across the S&P, then they're down you know, just under 10% or uh, just above 10%. And that, I think, you know, is showing what the challenge is as we think about how do you try and navigate this from a markets perspective and asset allocation, as well as trying to think about those economic um, uh, you know, environments and therefore how they will play back into markets. We had very intense discussions about the current economic situation, about the outlook, about the uncertainty. But after those good discussions, there was a determination by all governing council members to rally the proposal that was put together by the executive board and presented by our chief economist. You mentioned central banks and their importance on market sentiment and the risk of policy errors is rising by the hour. What is your take on the latest comments from the ECB, which, quite similar to the Fed, offered a somewhat hawkish surprise? Yes, I think they're in a difficult position by the fact that uh, you know, to, to do such a rapid turn would imply inconsistency. And maybe that was what we saw yesterday, that um, uh, just continuing on that pathway that they had laid out in the previous meeting. I think, again, that you saw in the comments to follow that it was trying to take back some of the uh, extreme level of the hawkishness that was implied from a quicker unwind of some of the buying programs. But the challenge, I think, really is that as we see these prices being maintained, as the cost of living impact flows through, as income is going to be uh, you know, very severely impacted from what we're seeing um, today, that the ECB's ability to follow through on this relative hawkishness is going to be, I think, challenged. And it may be a case it takes uh, a little bit of time for them to reposition on, on that so that they have some cover of of time and data to work with. But I do think it's highly unlikely that we're going to see the aggressive profile and any interest rate moves um, following through during the course of uh, this year. And that you know, does suggest that for the markets, it's trying to, again, navigate a very difficult profile where there is this conflicting um, uh, you know, position from both central bank and what they say, the actions, um, you know, what they actually do versus what they say, and then the markets thinking about how much they want to discount, uh, you know, the stagflationary pressures, recessionary pressures, or, you know, the very strong inflationary pressures that are playing out for some countries where we haven't seen the level of growth impact coming through yet. 
We spoke a little last week about historic precedents, the oil shock in 1973, for example. Taking into account how painful that disruption was for most asset classes, what guidance would you give investors on what to expect this time and how to allocate? Well, again, I think, you know, as I highlighted um, from how we've seen asset classes um, form already, it's showing you some of that stagflationary influences out there and impacting. So, you know, our thoughts on how do you look um, uh, forward to manage through this uh, Uh, environment that there's there's two things as we work through the stagflationary environment i think it's very much that still to have a sense of uh you know exposure to inflation staying longer in the system and therefore that um where we can see some of the expectations pick up and flow through into certain securities and that clearly means looking to index linked style securities to still have uh you know within your um, um portfolios as those pressures continue Again, I think that one of the areas that we've discussed previously and that continues to show a level of diversification because the policy settings are very different and the level of inflationary pressures are different is looking to China and to China debt. Um, and also the degree to which we've seen discounting of some of the problems that have been uh, very distinctly felt within China, such as the property market, that have rippled out to create much wider uh, spreads and concern around default rates than we think actually will um, play out and are justified at this stage. So I think, again, that there's opportunity to look there to have both diversification, but also yield opportunity. Um, when looking to the equity market, again, uh, you know, I tend to be in the camp that it's looking for how you can ensure that you have that sort of uh, strength of cash flow balance sheet but also to some of the markets that we think won't have some of the larger Im impacts as this plays through. And that means uh, you know, we continue to look to China, to Asia, to Japan as opportunities to uh, increase weightings you know, relative to the US, um, to a degree relative to Europe, because we cannot ignore the, the recessionary risks that are building at the moment. Um, but also that an interesting one is that the UK is standing out as having a lot of the value type trades. Obviously, it has some exposure to the energy and materials uh, areas and something that we feel that, uh, again, you know, as, as has outperformed, but can continue to keep that um, performance. But overall, one of the things that one can't lose sight of is that uh, you know, there's also a need to Uh, if hedges become very expensive, which they have become more recently, if you hadn't had them set, is actually just to have that degree of cash and be able to be um, willing to commit and think more tactically for a while as we navigate through, is this stagflation? Is it something that moves into a more recessionary environment? And obviously the challenge that comes from that more broadly, um, or is it something that actually that uh, we see you know, relative policy support start to change and be far more Uh, aggressive again and what that will then mean in terms of how it flows through different sectors. And maybe one of the things that really stands out as we've thought through our equity exposure and as I've said thinking geographically but one of the elements that really is sort of extraordinary as we think about the, the future is that now we almost have a new fang and that is as we look towards fuels and the whole energy market influence as we look towards aerospace and the defense needs that are going forward, as we look to agriculture and the food security that's such an important part that we've discussed that will be a challenge. 
as we look to nuclear and renewables and forms of different energy um, sources to improve on the picture and the, again, security that uh, is required. And then, you know, to gold and to forms of metals and mat minerals that will be important for us as we look ahead. So it is a strange environment as we move towards a different set of uh, uh, criteria as we consider how do we navigate the future and the influences that may be changing on making some of those individual company decisions and broader sectorial needs for our portfolios. That's brilliant. What a useful repurposing of an old acronym. Now, taking all that into account, how has Fidelity's core asset allocation changed this week? So I think the main thing that it's um, done is that made us uh, you know, continue to be a little more defensive, using strength in um, risk assets to try and lower our exposures a little bit further, to reallocate a little bit further as well towards, as I said, Asia and China, because they've had very difficult um, uh, weeks. And so uh, we feel that there's a great deal of value building up there, and we don't see the same economic um, conditions that are as negative as we could see in parts of the developed world. Um, and most probably, again, is that just thinking through, uh, you know, our relative underweighting credit, but ha added back a little bit of uh, duration, is that we see that that continuing for now. Um, and especially if we see that pendulum swinging a little bit more towards recessionary concern, you could see that pricing becomes a bit more difficult as default rate expectations just stay a little bit more robust, even increase a bit further um, as we navigate the next few steps of what is a, a very difficult um, environment, not just for markets, but obviously for uh, how the, the world navigates the, uh, uh, the invasion from Russia uh, uh, over the, the days ahead. Thank you, Andrew. That's all we have time for this week. But if you want to read more on Ukraine and the market implications, please go to your local Fidelity website or fidelityinternational.com. Thank you for listening. The producer this week was Seb Morton-Clark with production support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.